Suburban Eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yes, and this particular group of meerkats requires a solid internet connection, which unfortunately Scott the Velvet Glove does not have tonight. Something's happened to his internet, the NBN, so he's out of action. It's just Joe and I, so there we go, for episode 391 of this podcast, which is the Iron Fist and the tech guy, Joe. How are you, Joe? I'm good. That's good. So, yeah, 391. If you're in the chat room, say hello. And already Watley is in there wondering, because we are two minutes late probably coming on and Watley Mm -hmm. was waiting. Good on you, Watley. Right, tonight we're going to talk about news and politics and sex and religion what are we going to talk about? A little bit of homework on cluster bombs, briefly mentioned Commonwealth Games, sex education. You've all wanted to know about the tort of malfeasance in public office. School funding, Scripture Union, our friend Alison had a, was heavily involved in a bit of a disaster for Scripture Union, so full marks to Alison will tell that story. Ah, more polls. There's always polls about something, more polls about the voice and other stuff. A story about instant pot. Look, can't get by without talking about class. It's an important concept. So we're going to be talking about an article that talks about class. Two articles. We'll get to those. So looking at the bad white working class and how racist or not they were for this particular family. So, yeah, that's where we're heading on this particular one and... And, yes, Ross is in the chat room as well. Good on you, Ross. So, Joe, just before we started, you mentioned you've been watching in your spare time YouTube videos about cluster bombs. <laughs> yeah, it was a discussion from an Australian analyst called Perun, or Perun, P-E-R-U-N, yeah. who was saying, yeah, why would you want to use cluster munitions and what's the big deal anyway? And was saying, basically, so they're talking about artillery shells. And an artillery shell has, as an example, a radius of around 100 metres. But you get a very big explosion in the middle and the effects as you get further and further out are less and less. Mm. And the idea with a cluster munition is rather than one big explosion in the middle, you split it out into 20 or 50 smaller explosions that are spread across that same space. Mm-hmm. And... They're saying that figures that have come from both use on artillery ranges but also during the Vietnam War is that effectively it's a 10 to 1 usefulness. So for every one round of cluster munition you fire, you'd need to use 10 normal artillery rounds to get the same effect Mm -hmm. in terms of enemies' vehicles destroyed or enemies killed, soldiers killed. The downside is obviously that some of the munitions don't explode and it's the same with artillery rounds, but obviously you're putting more into the same area. Mm. 
and that civilians later on are going to wander around and rather than one big bomb that you're going to see and not trip over, there are lots of smaller bombs which you could quite easily trip over and set off. And said, effectively, it's the same as landmines. The anti-personnel mines are a similar size explosive. They're similarly hidden and pose more or less the same danger to civilians. Mm. So his point is that A-cluster munitions have already been used by both sides in this war. They already had stockpiles. Neither side are signatories to the treaties banning them. And saying that the countries who have signed up are the ones who don't rely on artillery because effectively it's a very useful artillery round. Right. Okay. So, so yeah. for, for, a, for an army that has a superior air force and doesn't expect to rely on artillery, yeah. they're quite happy to sign up on it. <laughs> they're saying, for, hey, all you other guys, you shouldn't have these cluster bombs. Let's all agree, yeah. no cluster bombs. Whereas yeah. those people who rely heavily on artillery and Russia was one of the biggest... Right. Uh, are going, fuck off, no, they're a really useful round. Right. We're not going to sign up to this agreement. Okay. And the Ukrainians so, were saying, we've got to clean up the landmines anyway, so we the, might as well so, clean up so cluster the, bombs. Effectively, the current front is World War One trench warfare. The mm. Russians have laid huge minefields. There's probably not going to be good records to clean up after the war, so they're going to have to demine the whole area. So whether they're cleaning up Russian mines or whether they're cleaning up Ukrainian Submunitions doesn't make much of a difference. There you go. So as long as the utilization is kept to those areas and not used to bombard civilian areas, mm-hmm. uh, then realistically there's not much of an impact, and that's why it's not the big bad monster that it's been made out to be. Who would have thought that we could simply say cluster bomb bombs? Not so bad after all. <laughs> Oh, it's not a laughing matter, but uh, that's the state of the world we're at. Mm-hmm. Good Lord, yeah. And Joe, this one you were telling me as well, I hadn't come across. A sex education book in Woolworths. Big W, but yes. Oh, Big W, right, okay, yeah. So a book aimed at 10 to 16-year-olds introducing with diagrams and text various in things that kids are looking up anyway. Sex education stuff. Sex education stuff. However, it covers, you know, how to have safe oral sex and how to have safe anal sex and discussions about consent. And strangely enough, the religious right have got wind of this and are absolutely disgusted that this is being sold, aimed at young children, grooming them Mm. because, you know, we, we can hide our heads in the sand and pretend that kids aren't looking this up on the internet anyway with their unrestricted access and even if you stop your kid have access to a mobile phone other kids in the playground have mobile phones Mm. they are all looking it up in the playground and showing it to around Mm. and this is yeah this is what my daughter has told me was going on in her school so yeah doesn't matter the school and there's very good evidence that kids who are given the words and told that they have the right to say no are less likely to accept grooming and abuse from adults. Yes, I hadn't heard that statistic. That so, a sex ed less likely to be subject to sexual abuse. Yeah, basically, the the more you pretend that it's dirty and disgusting and we can't possibly talk about it, the mm. less likely it is for a kid to speak up about it and feel that they can safely discuss it with an adult. Mm. 
So by giving them the words, giving them the tools and saying this is what is right and what's wrong, not on a moralistic in terms of sex, but, you know, that you have the right to say no Mm. and that having unprotected sex is dangerous and all all those sort of things, you generally lead to better outcomes for the kids. Mm. And therefore the question is for these people who are getting up in arms about it, what's their agenda? Why do they want the kids to not have the ability to say no? Mm. Yes. So that's a good counter-argument. And uh, so far, Big W has said to the book yeah, banners, big, get stuffed. We're basically, Big W have said, that effectively, it's down to the parents. They sell all sorts of stuff. I, I think the best that the nut jobs are going to get is possibly it in a sealed wrapper or it put in a place that is harder for kids to reach. Mm. Yep, yep. Hey, that problem with the chat's come up again. So do you listen to those who are on the watching the live stream? For some reason, the chat's disappearing from the screen. So we'll try and get it up so that your chats appear on the screen because that's fun. But, yeah, don't know what's going on there, Joe. We'll have to investigate with Restream later. So we'll try and... Stop and start the chat overlay and see if it comes up. At it's some coming stage. up for me. Is it? Yeah. Is it showing on the screen? Yep. Ah, okay. All right. Let me just bounce it from my end and see if it. Yeah. Did that refresh that for you? No, but if it's coming up on the screen for other people, that will do. So if it's there, good. Okay. Right. What else are we got to talk about? So that was a little bit of homework and other stuff. And. Joe, it seems to change when I change the window, when I minimise the window so I can bring my Word document up. But anyway, maybe it's just all at my end. So That's what she said. Yeah. Right, just briefly, Commonwealth Games in Melbourne, well, in Victoria, regional Victorian, Dictator Dan announced, not going to have them decide to cancel. Everyone's up in arms about, well, I think the general sentiment will probably be, really, who needs the Commonwealth Games? Is it worth it? It's such a second-rate event and if it's going to cost money, is it really going to generate enough benefit to justify the expense? <clears throat> In these tough times, I think people will probably be on board with that decision. So anyway, Dictator Dan <coughs> doing what he thinks and actually, I was going to say I, doing something, but he's actually not doing something, but he's making a decision at least. I, I, I thought it was an excuse to fund sporting infrastructure. Yeah, so I think he's decided to still fund some sporting infrastructure and that would just be cheaper than running a Commonwealth Games. Yeah. That seems to be the line he's running. So we've spoken in the last few weeks about, yeah, Bromman agrees, most people don't care. So the mass ma- the mainstream media will make a lot of press about it, but, yeah, $7 billion is a lot and I think people will probably you, agree with You, you mean the Murdoch press won't agree with yeah. something that yeah. Dictator Dan does? Yes. Shocking. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like if if the Murdoch press agrees with you on something, mm-hmm. you really have to double-check. It's, it's a bad idea, almost yeah, certainly. Well, that's, why I'm, that's why I'm so reticent on this whole voice thing to get my right. argument out there because I think these guys actually in agree... But my reasons are different. My reasons are completely different. Get to the same result, but, yeah. I'm fully aware of that, dear listener. But yes, I am on the side of some, same side of some crazy, crazy people, and it does, it is disconcerting. So, anyway, all right. Bill Shorten was talking about, his quote here, 
and Bill Shorten. But I talking about Robo Dead. What what's his background? Bill Shorten. Yeah. What do you mean, Bill Shorten? Is is he a lawyer? Could be. He's probably been so long in the union movement. He probably did law degree and then worked in a union and I I'm yeah. just curious that he knows about this. That's Yeah. Well, all of the listeners to this podcast will know about it shortly, Joe, so it'll mm. be common knowledge. But he says, I don't know why coalition ministers, with that sort of very, very damning analysis by the Royal Commission, why they think when the commissioner says there's the tort of malfeasance in public office, why they think that people, victims, won't sue them individually. So she must have mentioned it in her report, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So I wasn't aware of the tort of malfeasance or misfeasance in public office, but generally speaking, it's damages for loss inflicted by public officials guilty of conscious maladministration, so abuse of power by public officers who either knew they were breaking the law or recklessly decided not to care that this might be so. And that would seem to cover some of the players. Yeah in the robo-debt scenario. And, you know, I keep thinking about what is going to make people accountable in future. And I was thinking, well, public servants will look and they'll, they'll see what's happened to this Catherine Campbell woman and say, okay, I don't want to be in that position. I've got to write the email that says we can't oh, do this. Cover your ass, yeah. Yes, I have to write the cover your ass email, even though I've been instructed not to write cover your ass emails there might well be a Royal Commission in three years' time and I need that email. So that's one thing. But, uh, yeah, the, this tort of malfeasance in public office, if you are doing something purportedly in discharge of your public duty, you cause loss to people and you're doing it maliciously or with disregard to the legality, recklessly, then, yeah, can be sued. So Morrison apparently has been approved for legal aid ongoing. Yeah, because he hasn't got any money of his own. Yeah. And I guess they want to give him a fair chance of defending himself <coughs> if somebody brings a tort of misfeasance or malfeasance against him. But well, I, I think everyone has the right to hmm. legal defence. That used to piss me off about Cardinal Paolo going, how dare these lawyers represent him? And it's like, no, no, no. Yes. It's give him the best defence he can have and then when he's found guilty, we can say he had the best defence possible. I think There's that no might excuses. Be the, mm, I think that might be the theory here with the different right. players is give him a good legal defence. But that will be fascinating, Joe, if there's a – I mean, there would be a bunch of sort of ambulance-chasing lawyers mm. out there. Look, who, I'm surprised that who, – who are the usual group of the um, class actions? Yeah, I don't want to name them, but they're out there. Yeah, so, exactly. You would think that they would be approaching these people and saying, hey, let's give this a crack. But um, especially those that have lost relatives. Yes. So that would be really interesting if we start seeing that. Yeah, I don't know whether you could get manslaughter out of that. No, I don't think you could. But it seems a good chance of the tort of misfeasance. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, Yeah. Bronwyn says in the chat room, as a junior public servant many years back, I was always told to ensure that there was a cover-your-ass memo on the file. No public servant should carry risk for ministers. I think, though, Bronwyn, as part of that Royal Commission, 
I think there was talk about people being pressured not to send or, or do those sorts of things. But, uh, yeah, anyway, that's what you need to do. So Ross says, I saw rumours in the media that Morrison was intending to address Parliament about it soon. No can, way would he address Parliament was, in a was, meaningful can, way. Can you see him apologising for it? He would just d- deny blatantly that he'd done anything wrong. Or pass the buck. Yeah. Morrison has never addressed anything in his life. He's always scooted around it. He might talk in Parliament and scoot around the topic and and beef up his own position somehow, but who'd listen to him anyway? Noisy Andrew says, A young friend of mine had first-hand experience of robo-debt. She'd got herself a handy job by then, so just paid up. Yeah. yeah well, I, I wonder whether you can sue for getting your money back. I'm sure they could. Absolutely. Yeah. So... Yeah, I, I find oh. it weird. My brother's ex-girlfriend was Catherine Campbell, so oh, every time name. I see that name pop up, there you go. Yeah, Ross says, "Of course, he'll drop Catherine Campbell in it for sure. That's what he'll do in his speech. Is he'll drop her in it." And Bronwyn says, "Yes, that's right, Trevor. The public service is a lot more politicised these days, and people appease ministers because they are rightly worried about their job security. Ah, that's the world we're in. So." Anyway, if something's going to change behaviour, I reckon this tort of malfeasance or misfeasance in public office could be one that could do it. Of course, these players would all expect the government to cover them if there is a finding against them. But governments don't have to. No. So wouldn't that be great to see an award against some of these characters and have to... Pay for it personally. Yeah. There was a by-election. Although, in... having said that, mm. yeah, the civil service is paralysed by indecision as it is. Mm. Can, you, can you imagine the indecision if they had financial liability for every decision they make? Well, maybe you just take care to do it legally. Maybe. And get advice and then not shove that advice away in a basket somewhere that nobody can see it. Like, uh, yeah, I suppose. You know, it's not that hard to actually conduct yourself properly and not be sued in that situation if you just You mean like Queensland yourself. Education when they were told that discriminating against the Satanists would be? Well, <laughs> that's a different kettle of fish. But yeah. if you're acting in good faith and without knowledge of the invalidity of the act, then it's unlikely that it would constitute misfeasance. The whole point is these people were not acting in good faith. Yeah. So it's a yeah, pretty I mean, high bar. It's gross and, negligence or yes. it's deliberate malpractice. Yes. Yeah. So I don't think your average public servant could say, oh, it's a very risky career I've chosen. If you just mm-hmm. do the right thing that's obvious, you will be fine. I would yeah. have thought. So, hmm. <laughs> Anyway, that will be interesting to see how that develops over the next few years. Love to see that happening. What else have we got? Joe, you can still see the chat in the chat. I can, can yeah, yeah. All right, okay. I can see it on our little side screen, but I don't see it in the main screen. No, no, I see it in the stream window. Excellent, okay. And Bronwyn says, I think it's just about having processes in place to ensure that decision-making is evidence-based and has a robust basis overall. That includes getting reliable advice as to legality. There you go. I think I've told this story before, but 
A mate of mine was an accountant, fully qualified, working in one of what was then the big four firms. And he wasn't at partner level, but he was like an associate. And then he decided to become a lawyer and he did the bar exams and then worked as an article clerk in a law office and, of course, ended up in the tax section of some law office and ended up, they were writing some advice and the partner in charge was saying one thing and my friend Philip was saying, I disagree, I don't think that's right. And the partner said, well, you know, I know what I'm doing here. I'm, this is what I'm saying the advice is. And Philip said, okay, but I'm just going to write a memo in the file that said mm. my opinion was this and I told you this was my opinion. And apparently that was enough that this partner then reconsidered and the advice was changed. So right. that's the sort of thing that can go on if the system's working correctly. Yeah. yeah. Pretty I've, ballsy I've, move. Like most article clerks wouldn't have been ballsy enough, but he had enough experience yeah. that he could do I, that. I, I've told colleagues in the past that uh, a verbal agreement is worth the paper it's written on. <laughs> and, and that if you get a verbal agreement, you send an email afterwards saying, just confirming in our discussion that you said this. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Young people out there, cover your ass. I cover your ass memo email. That's what you need. Right. There was a by-election on the Gold Coast because Stuart Robert resigned and uh, so the seat of Fadden and it returned an LNP candidate who received a positive swing of 4.3%. So you would think, Joe, after all of the robo-debt publicity... What's going on that an electorate will provide a swing in favour of the LNP of 4.3%? Uh, it's, it's people who want to punish poor people because yes. they're doing nicely, thank you very much. Yeah. You have to look at the demographics. This is LNP heartland on the Gold Coast here. So, so yeah, positive swing. They retained it. The other part of this was that there was no Clive Palmer candidate who had previously had 6% of the vote. So there was 6% of the previous vote that had to go somewhere. And guess what? 4.3% went to the LNP guy. So... Is this federal law? Yeah. This is, okay. Yeah, this is the Stuart Roberts by-election. Because Mr Potato Head tried to stand for one of the Gold Coast safe seats. He did. And, and they didn't have him. Yeah. And he came, he, he slunk back to here and they re-elected him. That's right. Christ knows why. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that explains the swing is just that, there, well, there wasn't a, a Clive Palmer candidate and that 6% well, for Clive Palmer weren't going to vote Labor or Greens, were they? So, so Labor really had a minor swing against them. Oh, let me just see. I can't see it in my... Oh, just the Labor vote fell by 0.25 of a percent. The one that really fell was the Greens. So they fell from 11% to just over 6%. But according to this article, for right-wing retiree Heartland, which is what this seat was, that's not going to worry the Greens too much. I think they would take that as a badge of honour, actually, if they were the Greens, they would go, okay, in this particular electorate, if we get a swing against us like that, that's probably a good sign based well, on... Ross, Ross is saying it went to the hemp party. Ah, okay. Did he? 
Swing against yes. greens and went to hemp party. Okay. Hmm. Okay, there we go. He also says dodgy people rely on bullying good people into not speaking up. It happens everywhere. Who, mm. who, who'd have thought that the geriatrics were potheads? Yes. Yes. Who would have thought? So, anyway, Gold Coast is a strange place, dear listener. It is strange. I love Coolangatta where we are. It's, it's, I don't some of Mexicans. Cool, I don't consider Coolangatta the Gold Coast. It's more it's a, northern it's, New South. It's Wales. more of a village. Yes, <laughs> exactly. The rest of the Gold Coast is weird. I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. In that, again, when I was an article clerk, you would. As a lawyer, you would have undertakings with other lawyers where you would say by letter, if you send me this bank cheque for this amount, I undertake that I will send you this title deed for this property, for example. And a solicitor's undertaking is considered a very serious promise and mm-hmm. if you don't comply with it, you can take them to the law society and have all sorts of censures against somebody. So a sort of a promise, a solicitor's Undertaking using the word undertaking was considered very serious. And what is their bond? Yes, and uh, I remember my boss at the time, who was right wing Tony. I had some deal, something, some transaction, and I said, "We're going to be doing an un- mutual undertaking." Blah blah. He said, "That's fine." Oh, hang on a minute. It's not with a Gold Coast law firm, is it? <laughs> I said, "No, no, it's not." So that's okay. Just never accept an undertaking from a Gold Coast law firm because. They're cowboys down there. Like, it's just a strange place in that regard. Mm. Well, uh, the Queensland police chief who was found guilty ended up down there, didn't he? Terry Lewis. Yeah. Right. Yeah, probably. Yeah. The bag man. Mm. All that. Yeah, probably. Was he the bag man? No, he was just the bag collector. There was another guy who was the bag man. I can't remember. Mm. For my time. Yeah. Actually, there's a good, a good podcast with Chris Masters who was the investigative journalist behind the Four Corners report, The Moonlight State, and he was behind a number of different inquiries that led to royal commissions. And he was also the guy behind the one with this uh, soldier, what's his name? He'd just been found. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's lost the defamation trial and he's appealing. Okay, yeah. Um, so he's involved in a number of big cases, really good journalist. Anyway... Late Night Live, interview with Chris Masters, old school journalist. Sadly, not many like him left. You know that the Moonlight State is still up on the ABC website? Not surprised. Should be. Yeah, should be. Mm. Should be required watching in schools. Yes. Certainly up here. Mm. Yep. Yep. School funding. There was an article in The Guardian because they had done some right-to-information requests about school funding. And turns out, dear listener, it's not good for our state school system. So compared to private schools, funding to private schools has increased almost twice as much as funding to public schools in the decade since the Gonski review. So Gonski did a review and said, we should really come up with a figure that it costs to educate per student and we should take into account factors that make it more expensive to educate certain kids. And so kids from difficult, 
low socioeconomic backgrounds are statistically more expensive to educate for a variety of reasons than kids from upper middle class. And so the government should be paying more to schools that educate those sorts of kids than they do to schools that educate the others. So if you can imagine, dear listener, of course, in a public, in a private school where it's very easy to expel kids. And you generally <coughs> have well-behaved students with parental involvement anyway. Correct, because people are figuring if your kid's a real rat bag, I'm not spending 30 grand to send them to this expensive school in the first place. Yep. So there's a filtering aspect that takes place and then even if they've got the money and put them in there and the school says, this kid's just too hard, you can just take him to the local state school. So the state schools invariably end up with a higher proportion of kids who are difficult to educate. So they should get more money mm -hmm. for doing that. And Gonski was about, you know, what's it cost to educate a kid? Let's make sure every school gets yeah, the funding depending on the calibre of kid. Gonski was not a vote winner because, you know, I, I pay my taxes. I should get funding for my kid in, in private school. Yes. That is an Australian thing that, yeah, did right. Just like... I don't get public transport. I should get money to spend on my car every year that would otherwise go into public transport. It is the same argument, isn't it? It is. The government is subsidising the the bus commuter by mm -hmm. $300 a year or whatever it is. I should get that $300 that I could spend on my car. Yep. It's the same thing. Anyway, in this article from The Guardian, they're really looking at the period from 2012 to 2021 and funding for independent and Catholic schools rose by 34% and 31%, while funding for public schools increased by just 17%. So not only were we starting off at an unequal position, but it's just been getting worse. And... <sighs> but who made the promise that the private schools would be no worse off under Gonski? Gillard made a promise to pacify them and did that. And, yeah, there's just been a reluctance to lose votes to the mm. private school because... Because it's 40% of the population. Yes. Yeah. So, look, increasingly, though, particularly in this current environment, there must be a lot of people who are second-guessing sending their kids to a private school. Surely, yeah, when things are tough, so... You pull your kids out. I would think the future for private schools is going to be bleaker and bleaker because people just cannot afford it, I wouldn't have thought. And culturally, why you would send your kid to a private single-sex school, particularly boys, and have them mixing with a bunch of upper-class <laughs> nitwits but just do you really want your boys inculcated in that culture? Really? Goodness well, sake. Yes, because, you know, the old boys network. Yeah. Total rubbish. Complete rubbish. Furphy. I don't know. Uh, I've got a job on the strength of it. Yeah. How old are you? Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and it in, was when I was 17. Yeah. Back in the day, maybe, but not now. Unless you're a stockbroker, and how many people get jobs as a stockbroker? 
So they look at their grades now. Okay. So that was just an article in there talking about the widening gap and, you know, private schools and the funding of it, it's Australia's version of gun control, isn't it? It's just a crazy system that we have here. And people get so tribal about their school and they love their school and there is something to it where they'd be really cranky with the government that pulled the funding Mm -hmm. that made it tough on their old school. Are there... Are there that many? I don't know. I think it's another one of these public services that shouldn't be outsourced mm. and that we should be resuming them. We should be going, what, what's the school worth? How much money have we given you to upgrade the school facilities? We'll take that mm. off. And how much of that land was given to you for free? Yeah. And there you go, here's some money back. Or just stop the subsidy and they won't be able to continue as a business. And well, they'll actually... as a failing business. Correct. Yeah, but then they'll sue you for investor state protection. Yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll sell all their... All the private schools will move to Singapore and then see you under an investor state. That's about the only thing they could do, Joe. You're right. But, but yeah, that's what, they, that's what the government should do, is just pull the funding and say, that's what they could do with the hospitals. Hmm. is simply say, we're just going to provide this funding. We're going to whack up a big building over here and we're not going to provide funding to you and you're going to collapse and we'll pick up the scraps later on. It'll never happen, but that's a theory anyway. Look, so what's this one from Bronman? I read an interesting article recently written by some educational researchers about the public versus private issue. They identified a large number of private schools which they labelled cruiser schools because they are failing to improve the position of their students based on NAPLAN and other data and therefore offer poor value for money for both parents of their students and the taxpayer. Yes, David Gillespie has a book on schools. In fact, there is an interview with David on this, on this very podcast. Just search for it somehow and you'll see David Gillespie in the search bar of your podcast app and it's all about choosing schools and how... There are good private schools and there are good public schools and he says you need to look at the, the results, statistics and figure it out. But just because it's private doesn't necessarily mean it's a great school. Right, and Simbudgie says, I'm a private school educated Catholic education. Yep. Okay. Our friend Alice, is Alison in the chat there anywhere? I haven't seen her name I come up. I haven't seen. Hello to no. Alison and her mother, Bev, who listens with her. Might be in the car at some stage. So, Alison. Listen with mother. Yes. Five years ago, Alison told the Australian Tax Office that the Scripture Union Queensland, who are the people who employ chaplains, appeared to be misusing their school ministry funds deductible gift recipient status because they were giving people tax-deductible receipts for donations. And the problem was that the tax-deductible status was specifically for donations to provide religious instruction in government schools. Meanwhile, chaplains, of course, are prohibited under the scheme from providing religious instruction. So Scripture Union was offering tax-deductible status, 
for the donations, supposedly because the donations were for religious instruction. Meanwhile, under a scheme in which they were prohibited from providing religious instruction. And it turned out that the Morrison government offered a sort of... Indemnity. Uh, an, in, an exemption, sort of a, just a sort of a government overruling, if you like, to just say, give them this special tax-deductible status, even though they don't really qualify, is the reason for it. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, one of the few good things that the Labor federal government has done, on a very short list when it comes to secularism, is they refused to extend that special arrangement. And so Scripture Union are back to being subject to the laws that everybody else is subject to. Gifts are no longer tax deductible and Scripture Union is crying poor that they won't be able to offer the same number of chaplains that they used to. Cry me a river, Joe. <laughs> sure, I've got a very tiny violin somewhere that I could play. Great work again, Alison. Somewhere, someday they'll erect a statue for you, Alison, one of Queensland and Australia's best secular activists for sure. So, yeah, there you go. It's only taken five years. Alison's in a – she plays the long game. There we go. Fantastic stuff. And there's a lovely article in The Guardian by Paul Carp explaining all that. So, so that was – Great work for Alison, great result, and another small victory for secularism. Hasn't been a lot of them, but that's one. We'll take what we can get. Right, it wouldn't be a podcast episode, Joe, without a poll about The Voice. No. Yeah, last time we were talking about a news poll, and news poll was quite... Uh, different to what we'd previously been looking at, which was Essential Poll. And News Poll was really giving quite a negative prognosis for the voice referendum. Now there is an Essential Poll out. And I think, Joe, what's happened is Essential before didn't offer a don't know or unsure option, which they've decided to put in now. So overall, according to... The essential, it's 47 yes, 43 no, and 10% unsure. So I'm pretty sure that's a drop from where they were before because it was seemed to be a lot close. It was in the 60s before. Mm -hmm. Like so, so, yeah, that's the current essential poll. Although and it does say brackets if unsure, which way are you currently leaning towards? Mm-hmm. Well, on this graph, it's just got 10% unsure. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I don't know what that means. Anyway, still not looking good for the voice. In terms of states, they show Queensland as a clear no, but no clear no's in the other states, but lots of don't no's and unsure's. And even New South Wales, they have as 45 yes, 44 no, with 11% unsure. So under news poll, New South Wales was a clear yes, but under essential, not so clear. Hmm. That was that. And 
Males, of course, more likely to say no compared to females. Young people more likely to say yes. So news was going shock, horror, now more women than men, or is it women were also more likely to say no? Mm, They were touting touting something about women saying no, voting no. Mm. Well, under this essential poll, females 49% yes, 40% no. Males, 47% no, 44% yes. There we go. Mm-hmm. Young people are a yes, old people are a no. Shock horror. Mm. And Labour and Greens voters are yes, coalition voters are no, minor parties and independents, big no's. Yeah. I suspect we make up the 18%. Which 18% was that, Joe? Green no voters. Oh, the green no voters. Yes, indeed. Indeed. That's us. And that's we can say that because Scott's not here. Correct. It's just never going to vote green. It's interesting that Scott aligns with the Greens on this particular issue. I know. Scott aligns with the Greens on nearly everything. Yes. He just refuses. To, to admit it to himself? Yes. Mm. They're easily the most secular. Uh, yes. When it came to the school funding, let me go back to the school funding. What I was talking before about, you know, funding for private schools outweighing funding for the public schools, the Greens education spokesperson, Penny Alman Payne, said the gap in funding between private and public schools that created one of the most unequal and segregated school systems in the OECD. Quote, it's clear that the implementation of Gonski has been a failure. By no measure can anyone say a decade later, Our school funding model is working. It's a twisted and perverse system that is widening the gap between rich and poor kids and lowering average student performance. You'll never get a Labor education spokesperson using language as frank and fearless as that. Scott has got to vote Greens, whether he Um, likes it or not, if he's true to his ideology. Education and health, it's this this whole federal state funding Fiasco. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it, it either needs to be all federal or it needs to be all state. Yeah, well, in any event, whoever is funding it needs to abide by principles of public education, secular public education. Mm-hmm. So, and the only party talking that way are the Greens. I don't see this current Labor federal education minister doing anything. Even though he was raised in a public school, he's just, there's, there's no talk at all. N- nothing encouraging from them. So, yeah. Okay, this one's from Caitlin Johnston. She read a, a thing in the New York article about the Instant Pot, a popular electronic pressure cooker whose parent company recently filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. There we go. A pressure cooker manufacturer, Joe, filing mm-hmm. for bankruptcy. Why would that be? Your thought, first thoughts might be they must be making a dodgy pressure cooker. No, no. I The sous vide groups talk about the Instant Pot and right. it has a dedicated following. It's kind of like, oh, what's the expensive, the magic mix that cooks and the, does The Thermomix thing. The Thermomix is very much like a Thermomix except it's a tenth of the price. There you go. yeah. Are you a sous vide guy, are you? Yeah. Oh. So you've got the thing with the thermometer and it turns a 
thing yes. off, on and off, okay, in your, what are you slow cooking in your sous vide? Steaks generally, but also chicken is incredibly tender. Mm. And scrambled eggs are really, really nice. Okay. That's why you can get chicken breast that is still moist mm. if you cook it in a sous vide as opposed to how it normally wants to dry out. Yes. Mm. I don't have one. It's just another gadget I don't have room for, but I can understand that you'd have one. Yeah. Good show. yeah. Okay. So, yeah, Instant Pot. What doomed the Instant Pot? How could something that was so beloved sputter? Is the arc of kitchen goods long but bends towards obsolescence? Business schools may someday make a case study of one of Instant Pot's vulnerabilities, namely that it was simply too well made. Once you slap down your $90 for the Instant Pot Duo 7-in-1, you were set for life. It didn't break. It didn't wear out. And the company hasn't introduced major innovations that make you want to level up. As a customer, you were one and done, which might make you a happy customer, but is hell on profit and growth performance metrics. Making a quality product that lasts a long time instead of quickly going obsolete or turning into landfill will actually drive you into bankruptcy. Now, sad. So much these days, you know, when I grew up, you'd repair things with a soldering iron. Mm. And now it's just not cost effective to crack open the seal Mm. because the goods are so cheap and labour is expensive. A lot of things don't make sense, Joe. I was in Coles supermarket the other day Mm -hmm. and a packet of like salt and vinegar kettle chips was, Joe, is that a 135-gram pack? It's a 165-gram pack. It would have cost, if it wasn't on special, mm-hmm. $6 something. It was on special. Cost. Okay. Normal price is $6 something. I looked mm-hmm. at that and was like, there's no way I'm buying that. I'm just a humble podcaster. Can't yeah, exactly. It. But we also needed a new frying pan. Mm-hmm. Three aisles down, get this fantastic Teflon-coated large frying pan for $15. Yeah. And I'm just going... This just doesn't add up where this measly bag of chips is nearly $6.50. I'm getting an entire frying pan for 15 It just, it's like when you see milk is like three litres for a bit over $3. Yeah. And, and then, uh, you know, 650 grams of water is $3. Life's not fair, Joe, when it comes to pricing. We, we've got friends who are a dairy farmer and you remember they were doing the whole mm. litre for a dollar, they were saying effectively it was bleeding the farmers down in eastern Victoria. Mm-hmm. They were really suffering under that because yeah. they, were, they were just not making any money. Mm. Yeah, I think they were losing. And the problem is the, the supermarkets are, are effective monopolies because mm. yeah, who else are you going to sell to? Mm-hmm. And so when the supermarkets say, we're selling your product at this price... Take it or leave it. Yep. And that's why when they're looking at inflation in Australia, we, a lot of our industry, there's few players involved. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. We, Coles we and Dick Smith a bit back again. Yeah. Yep. So too many oligopolies. But anyway, that's an interesting one. Instant pot, if you're making a product that's just too good, then it's not a recipe for success. So... Planned obsolescence. Take it you know about 
just trying to remember the name of it, the light bulb cartel. And it sounds like a conspiracy theory. This, this is a, an interesting story. Back in the 1920s or 30s, a group of light bulb manufacturers, the, the lifespans of light bulbs have been increasing and increasing. Mm-hmm. And they decided that actually this was not good for profits. And so they got together and made an agreement that none of them were going to create a light bulb that lasted more than a thousand hours. And in fact, if they did, they had to pay a fine to the cartel for right. every additional hour. Obviously, this was in secret because this surely breached anti-trading laws at the, time. at the time. Maybe not. Maybe that sort of behaviour introduced laws like that. But certainly, mm. there is there is actual proof of collusion between manufacturers to yes. set and control the price with planned planned obsolescence. Mm. And in fact, there's an electronics guy who I follow was talking about LED light bulbs and saying that there are some that are sold, I think, in Dubai or one of the UAE. Mm. And effectively, they run the light bulbs at half the power that they're sold elsewhere. Right. And that gives you a 10 times lifespan. Okay. So when he gets his light bulbs, he pulls them apart, changes a bit of the electronics inside, and derates them and runs them at about half power, and he says they just last forever. <laughs> they, they deliberately run them hot. Oh, okay, yep. So, because, so they burn out. Right. Well, no, it makes them more mm. cheaper to buy, but, of yes. course, they burn out much more quickly. There you go. Nothing would surprise me. Mm. Let's finish with a little bit of race and class discussion just to finish things off with. This was an article by Shannon Burns in Mianjin. It's an old article, but it's all sort of in preparation for the, the massive Indigenous voice podcast, now anticipated to be eight and a half hours long when I get to it. But actually, I'm reading an interesting book at the moment, Race, Monogamy and Other Lies They Told You, Busting Myths About Human Nature by Augustine Fuentes. I and might have that one. Right. Is that because I mentioned it to you or you just no, came no, across no. that one? Um, anyway. It would have been around monogamy. I have oh, okay. grabbed various. That's upside down. Yeah, that's doing a mirror image or something, isn't it? Yeah. Right. So Anyway, it's interesting because it's talking about culture and what is culture and how race is a myth but culture isn't and culture is real for people in it but... You know, human behaviour is a combination of genetics and culture. But it's not just genetics plus culture. There's a real intertwining and intermixing and interrelationship that's quite complicated. And I think it goes a long way to trying to think about Indigenous issues is trying to think about culture. It is, after all, just an ideology, like religion. How dare you say that? Mm. So... Reading that, anyway, just on this article, got a few stories in it. We'll finish off with this one. He says, I spent much of my childhood in northwestern suburb of Adelaide that was for decades predominantly white and working class. In the 1980s, the new influx of migrants and refugees from Vietnam, Cambodia and China settled there in large numbers. 
Mansfield Park also boasted an extensive collection of public housing, which ensured that underemployed Anglo-Australians, like my parents, were well represented. So that paints a good picture. White working class, new Asian migrants, Adelaide. It was here that I became ashamed of my family's racist attitudes. My father and stepmother used racist language privately, but got along well with our neighbours, all of whom were Vietnamese or Chinese. They referred to these as the good ones, while unknown ones were not to be trusted. Slopes and nips were not taboo words in our household, yet my parents would have denied that they were racist for using them. To their minds, the language you employed did not define you. I suspect the shame I felt about my parents' racism sprang mostly from experience. The bulk of my friends were Vietnamese and Chinese, and their families seemed more admirable than mine. My attitude was therefore a product of intimacy and experience rather than abstract notions of morality or equality. I had an opportunity as a child that my parents, who had grown up poor among working-class whites, never had. I also had the chance to see myself through migrant eyes and what I saw was often confronting. Poor whites were scorned by more than a few of the Chinese and Vietnamese migrants I came to know, especially the hard-working, self-sacrificing parents who were deeply invested in their children's education and upward mobility. They made it clear that I was not the kind of friend they wanted for their sons. Heard that one before, Joe? Mm. Hard-working Asians going, don't want you hanging around that lower-class white scum. They're not the people for you. Oh, I can believe that. I can believe it as well. Why not? At the time, I was ashamed of my parents' warped hostilities, but after migrating into middle-class lifestyle, I've become less judgmental. Here I've discovered that unlike my parents, very little is imposed on me. He's speaking here as a middle-class person now. We are never confronted by aggressive people as we go about our daily business, and we enjoy a prevailing sense of safety and certainty. For precariously employed, unskilled labourers, the prospect of competing against a recent migrant for a job is inevitable, while for middle-class people it's only a remote possibility. In short, as sort of the middle class that he's now entered into, our empathy and values are largely untested. He goes on, let's skip that bit. As an aspirational teenage lumpen, I learned to embrace a working class ethos. It was a simple experiential lesson. Whenever I allowed myself to feel like a victim, I fell into paralysis and deep poverty. Whenever I took pride in my capacity to work and endure, things got slightly better. One worldview worked, the other didn't. It says, at university I discovered that this ethos didn't apply. A season of despair would not send middle-class teens spiralling into a life of drug-addled indigence. They could simply brush themselves off and enrol again next year. Strong, class-enforced safety nets meant that self-pity could be accommodated and victimhood could even form part of a functional identity. This is a part I found interesting coming up. Indeed, the willingness to expose your wounds is another sign of privilege. Those for whom injury has a use value will display their injuries. Those for whom woundedness is a survival risk won't. As a consequence, 
middle-class grievances now drown out lower-class pain. This is why the wounded lower classes come to embrace conservative discourses that ridicule middle-class anguish. Those who cannot afford to see themselves as disadvantaged are instinctively repulsed by those who harp on about disadvantage. It's true enough. I Mm. was in a men's group with an Islander guy Mm -hmm. uh, and we were all talking about our woes and he said, I I just don't come from a, a place where men could express their feelings. Right. I'd be torn to shreds if I was to say any of this. Yes. And it wasn't that they didn't have any problems, Mm. just that they weren't allowed to show any form of weakness. Yes. Or they the fact that you could you could you could not celebrate. Well, some people almost do celebrate. Some people um, do celebrate, (laughs) but certainly harp on about your disadvantage is a sign of privilege. To some, is is kind of what. The argument is here to some yeah, extent. Absolutely. If you're really, really suffering and you're underprivileged, you can't talk about it. You can't show that weakness. You're actually in a privileged position if you can. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's struggling. Your vulnerabilities. Then. Interesting. Mm. Goes on about a section on speech here, which, eh, why not? We've got a few minutes. This will be mm. the last thing. The rules of speech are habitually negotiated in the working-class world in ways that many of my middle-class friends would find shocking. The factories I worked in typically employed at least a couple of rough speakers who would use cunt in the way that the rest of us use mate. They were upbraided whenever they swore within the hearing of customers, but that was the extent of the surveillance. It was also understood that if they performed their job well and behaved decently, their rough manners would not count against them. How is it that middle-class progressives are unwilling or unable to make similar adjustments? In the working-class context in particular, it's what you physically do, what you make, the observable physical impression that counts. That is the native language, the one they are fluent in and the one they trust. And that language often conflicts with working-class speech or attitudes. And he tells a story. I was working in a recycling centre for some years. One of my workmates was a kid called Ricky. I regarded him as a low-life brute, and he regarded me as a rule-following sissy. We were both right. Every week, an elderly Chinese man brought his bottles and cans to us. He couldn't speak English, which tends to frustrate racists, and Ricky was duly irritated. One morning, the man, who had difficulty walking, accidentally put his car into gear while he was half out the door and still tangled in his seatbelt. His legs went sideways and dragged onto the ground as the car took off, and he struggled hopelessly to pull them in or to reach the brakes or to loosen the seatbelt to escape. The car was only a few feet away from me, but all I managed was an incoherent shout and an uncertain jog as it picked up speed and headed for the main road. Ricky dashed past me, jumped into the man's lap, grabbed the steering wheel, quickly found the brakes. He then helped the man out of the car, checked he was uninjured and knelt with his arm around him as he cried and shook on the ground. When the man was calm enough to stand, Ricky pulled him to his feet, told him to take care, then walked away muttering, fucking Asian drivers. It wasn't a perfect performance, but it got the job done. 
Uh, he says here, my parents were the racist. My parents were racist in private speech, but not in action. Did that make them secret racists who hid their racism from the wider world, or were they non-racists who played with racist speech, or a bit of both? Who can possibly say? My worry is that by conflating racist or offensive speech or attitudes with racist or offensive actions or activism, we push people like my parents and Ricky over to the wrong side of the political fence. Anyway, I thought that was a good story, some good ideas to bear in mind. Yeah, I mean, I I have always come from a culture where you do play with these ideas. You tell the shocking jokes not because you truly believe the underlying concepts, mm. but because the underlying concepts are so shocking, that's what makes the joke. Mm. That 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 the idea behind it is so sickening and so depraved that oh my god, you can't say that sort of thing. Mm. And I had a boss who came in; he'd come from the sales team, and he went, "It's so different working here because." Somebody walks through the door and you say, no, fuck off, but you'll help them. <laughs> Whereas the sales team will promise you the world and deliver nothing. Yeah. Good example, Joe. Yeah. You think that's Australian? You, you said your sales manager came from somewhere else and that was a surprise to him? Well, th this was actually in Jersey, but... Right. Where was he from? He was Dutch. Okay. But, but he was saying our sales team were very much about the outward image mm. but did it didn't follow through they didn't care yes whereas we actually cared about the customer experience <laughs> but but we put on this outward uncaring face that yeah. if you didn't know yeah. and you took seriously yeah yeah the the best answer is to start with a no and work to a yes because people feel happy Whereas yeah. if you go, certainly, what can I help you with? Oh, no, I can't do that. People feel let down. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Might be something tied in with the Australian thing where people, the more friendly and matey you are with somebody, the more abusive you'll be. Mm. And Americans will find that quite shocking. I, these mates are just putting shit on each other yeah. all the time instead of positive, loving, warm words. <laughs> That is an Australian trait as well, I think. I, but, I yeah. was on a training course in England with a friend of mine mm. and he was I was his customer, but I'd known him for a few years. And the boss of their company came out, or the boss's wife came out to teach us some software. And so I'm sat in class just taking the piss out of him. He couldn't really respond because I was the customer and therefore... But she said, stop it, you two. I don't, don't want to have to send you outside for fighting. <laughs> and I just look at her going, what is she smoking? Yeah. She's going, why are you being so mean? And it's like, because he's my friend. Yes. This is normal. Yes, there you go. But, you know, she was deep South American and all, all politeness. Mm. And she couldn't understand that friends would talk to each other like that. Mm. So there you go. Speech in different cultures yes. can mean less than actions and can intentionally be the opposite of what it's actually meant to be on the face of it. There might be some underlying subtext there that is well, missed um, by people. A, a lot of the Asian cultures where the concept of face is true, mm. 
where you'll very happily say, yes, 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 mm. or I'll think about it, which actually means no, but you can't possibly say no to someone. Mm. Yes. I think in Indigenous culture that's a thing as well. Mm, quite possibly. I think some footballers were found when they were in environments that they couldn't say no to certain things, like you've got to be here on Sunday or something for a special training thing and they, they didn't know how to say no because culturally that just wasn't something they could do. So, Well, that was something that was raised in the courts, mm. was the fact that Aboriginal people, when a question is put to them, are taught to be deferential. Yes. Mm. And therefore, you know, did you commit this crime? Mm. They're Instead culturally... of an outright no. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There we go. Culture needs mm. to be understood. Mm. Yes. Right. Well, dear listener, I hope you enjoyed the story. Scott will be with us next week, provided his NBN is operating. Fixed. Yeah. And uh, we're going to talk more about culture because I reckon I'll be finished this book by then. So I'll get into the weeds on a bit of culture. Thanks in the chat room for your comments and they've been good ones. And good on you, Alison, for a victory during the week of some sort there. And we'll talk to you all next week. Bye for now. And it's a good night from him. <laughs>